What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Where we come from, how we grew up, and maybe why we may have some of the ideas that we have or perspectives on life or what's going on or what's not happening. Right. And so uh, I want to get that from you. Okay. Um, so can you just you know tell us a little bit about yourself? Just introduce yourself and just like, ah. who's Linda? Like, yeah. Oh well, I'm not sure where to start. I'm 66 years old and I um, am a retired school teacher. Okay. And I, my husband and I have a small trucking company. Um, and we started that company by driving all over the nation ourselves for a few years, uh, living in the truck. And it's a box truck, not an 18-wheeler, but the front looks like an 18-wheeler. Okay. Um, and um, have a really spectacular, wonderful marriage. And, awesome. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I met my husband in prison, and we had to fight in court to get married. And um, then... He finally was able to get out about six years after we met. <clears throat> and he was going to get out on parole, like, right after we met. But then when certain people found out that I had applied to come, after I finished my practicum in the prison, I applied to come in and visit him. And uh, certain people got very upset about that. And they went to the judge and says, doesn't this guy have life without parole? And they resentenced him. Or that's not the technical correct term, but that's my my word. They resentenced him to life without parole and said we could never see each other. And then they did a lot of stuff, changed policies within the prison system to keep us apart. And so finally, we won in court in a, a civil lawsuit against TDOC, and they said, yeah, you have to let them get married and visit. And so, um, but in retaliation, TDOC changed their policies which resulted a few years later in a couple who had fallen in love um, and she couldn't, she knew she could never see him again. Right. And uh, she tried to get him out of prison and a guard was shot, a really nice guard was shot. And, <clears throat> you know, tragedy comes from all of this prejudice. Right. So we, my husband and I, we were, as we were driving all over the country, we would talk about this prejudice that we call felonism mm -hmm. because it's like racism, only it's an expansion of racism. Right. And so um, I did lots and lots of studying and lots of observing about where um, racism came from and where it is applied today. Mm -hmm. And it's every segment of our society. Um, and, to in, and after writing this book, Felonism, Hating in Plain Sight, um, I got to thinking more about it, and really, it's that our nation was founded on the dynamic similar to that of domestic violence. And just because it's simpler, I'm going to kind of frame it as you got a man that's the, the violent one, although I know families where the, the wife is the violent one, but so you have a person who's violent and then the participant who is being dominated by this violence. And sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's just emotional and financial. Um, but our country was founded on this, where we had a small minority of people who were slave owners, and they controlled the whole nation, saying, oh, this group of people, they're inferior because they're not Christians, or if they did become Christians, then all of a sudden they, they were Christians, but they were a lesser species. Right. 
and they were black. Because they were black. Because, and and the, really, the, slavery had not been a new invention. Right, yeah. But until Americans wanted to have a justification for being so cruel to mm -hmm. their slaves, and, and um, that's why they invented more race. They invented racism, really. Right. And the whole nation believed their lies. So I call these people who started the whole racist thing the uh, uh, abusers of power, mm -hmm. capital A, capital P. Right. And... So that whole dynamic where we have one small group that tells everyone else, hey, if y'all want to be safe, you have to, uh, number one, trust me, right. and number two, set these people over here aside and put them in a category that says they're less than human, right. less than worthy, less than everything. And you can even kill them with impunity because they are less than. Right. So that... We still are practicing that today, right. and um, they've just changed it from being a racial focus to being that of people who are in certain categories, right. you know, LGBTQ and right. um, women and gays, and right. but especially people who are suspected or convicted of a felony right. or any crime, and their family members. Right. Before you, you knew about feminism, um, racism or anything, I truly believe we're all affected by white supremacy, racism. Oh, absolutely. Negatively, negatively affected. Negatively, negatively Even the people who profit from, from it are negatively affected. affected right? Yeah. Um, how did this affect your upbringing personally and the community around you? That's a good question. Um, I can remember when I was a girl, I didn't learn how to read till I was in like sixth grade. And after my parents paid for good tutoring. <laughs> and one of the first things I read was an article. I would make myself read on the parade magazine on Sundays while my parents were getting ready for church and we were already ready. And I read this thing about the Attica riots. Mm -hmm. And it ended with how can we expect people to come back to society as you know productive people if we're so cruel to them? And that stuck with me. And I was only I don't know how old I was exactly, but I was in middle school or high school, probably early high school or middle school. And um, so through the years, and I was raised in a very uh, conservative Christian home. Okay. My parents were later missionaries in Africa and other places. But And yet, even though that was true, racism was a part of my family. I remember my granddaddy telling me, sweetheart, black people aren't worse than us, but you're not to be around them because that's the story of the uh, tower, power, tower of Babel, you know, that black and white people aren't supposed to mix. And I didn't, I didn't believe him, but, you know, right. that was his growing up. That was right. his raising. And, right. um, and were other people in, your, in the community that you lived in have a similar... Have a similar mindset, or...? Yeah, a lot did. And, and because integration happened when I was um, probably in fifth or sixth grade. Okay. It was the first time we had any black kids in our school. And to tell you the truth, hate to say it, ashamed to say it, but I didn't really interact with the black girl in our class, and I'm sure she wasn't happy, right. you know, being ostracized like that. Right. Um, and I don't even remember who, who she was, but I feel right. bad that it, she had to go through that. Right. But then when I was in high school, my dad was in the Navy, so we had moved from uh, Virginia Beach and then gone to South Carolina where I lived, where I went to middle school, and um, Dr. King was murdered while we were there. Mm -hmm. And so, and at that time, my parents were um, working with a black church. Um, we, were going, we would go to their church, they would come to our church, and we would hang out together, and so that got 
I got a little more exposure to civil rights and and it was important to me, especially when I got to high school, back at the same town I had left uh, elementary, um, there, now there were black kids, in, a lot of black kids in my high school, right. and I loved them. They were such right. cool kids. I remember this one kid, Andre, we would just joke around all the time, and right. um, uh, <laughs> one day, I, we, we'd been outside on field day, and right. we were hanging out while waiting for the teacher to come in, and Andre was, the kids were all talking about being sunburned, and I said, and Andre said, yeah, I got a tan too. I said, Andre, you can't get a tan. And he pulled open his shirt and said, see? <laughs> Because <laughs> he had a darker spot where right. his shirt had been exposed. Right. So, right. so it was educational. Right. And, you know, if I think if I had, um, I don't know, been in a family that was more social, politically active, it, right. I would have benefited more flourish from that point forward. Right. And that exposure, right? Just ex yeah. understand, you know, your other neighbors, your other community. Right. Um, but when we're in our, you know, like our bubbles and we're, we're learning and from other people and getting projected on how they feel about certain people because at times they get, get conditioned to think the same way, unfortunately, until we can escape and like, oh, no, like that thinking was completely wrong. Exactly. And, you know, the at that time, people were getting used to the idea of, Black people are not different, right. and um, but I remember hearing messages like, "Oh, don't touch that. You don't know who's touched that." And right. the implication being, a black person might have touched that, so it uh, would affect you. Right. And um, you know, my husband, when he was young, he told me the story about um, people would always say, "Oh, you can't drink after a black person because it somehow or other it affects the water fountain." Right. And he said, "He said I want to drink after. I don't care who's drunk there. I'm right. drinking. I'm getting some water." Right. And he right. drank the water. And he had a little question in the back of his mind whether or not right. that were true. Was, was something going to be wrong with him right. after he drank after a black person? And he said, "Nothing happened. It was right. all great." So he's gathering information right. and you know challenging the lessons that have been taught to him. And see, I really think abusers of power have trained the masses to believe certain falsehoods, right. and today, KKK believe right. those falsehoods that were started by slave masters. Right. During your journey and growing your perspective, what have been some of the things that you've done uh, to confront and combat this racism, this white supremacy, um, personally, um, in your own kind of growth, and also like maybe those around in your community? Hmm. Well, as a teacher, I tried to be real focused on, but I, I think I've kind of failed in many ways, but I tried to really focus on the needs of my kids who were black and, um, or any minority, you know, right. and especially the ones who were, I always taught in um, schools that were um, from, you know, what, is, what did you call them? I forgot, what did we call them? The schools that get federal funding because 75% of their population is in poverty. Um, but public schools. No, no, yeah, really today, just <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. Um, no, there's a name for it, and I have forgotten because I've been away from teaching since 2010. Okay. Uh, although it just feels like yesterday, but um, I've never really minded talking to black people, right. whereas other people are concerned about it. Yesterday, I was at this event, and someone came riding down the parking lot, and. Uh, um, homeowner said, oh, no, don't go out and meet them. But I was thinking they might be lost or have a flat tire or something, so right. I went out and met them. And they were um, Asian, well, Arab guys, 
-hmm. delivering Amazon. Right. And I felt no fear to right. go up and talk to strangers. And I don't mind connecting people who right. other people might go, oh, you know, <laughs> you're right. talking to them? But I think writing our book was the biggest thing I've done. Um, right. And my husband and I wrote it together, but that's the biggest thing we've done to try and combat all of this. Let's talk about the book a little bit. Okay. Um, well, we started um, realizing that the prejudice that was against us was being implemented against lots of people, and there wasn't a name for it, so we invented the name felonism. And um, so then I thought, well, you know, we, when we thought of the word felonism, we started seeing how it affected our society in lots of ways I hadn't realized before. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to write a book, and I interviewed people from all different walks of, of society. Like I interviewed people who worked in prisons and people who were children of people who had been incarcerated. Um, and I interviewed people who had been prisoners mm -hmm. and were prisoners. And um, then and I put their story into words, and then I each chapter, is a, except for the first and the last chapter, is a different person's story from a different walk of life, and then showing how felonism has been affecting them. Mm -hmm. And then I have commentary after each person's story to show how it's not just them, it's nationwide. Right. Like there's a particular person who worked in prisons and was scared, even though he was about to retire and is now retired, he doesn't want his name used because he's afraid they'll take his um, pension away from him for wow. being pro-prisoner. Right. And um, he's probably one of the best stories in the book, in my opinion, but they're all really good. Right. Um, but it, it shows how people who are incarcerated, um, who are, are monitoring those who are incarcerated, allegedly keeping society safe, they're tragically affected. They have a lot more suicide, domestic violence, um, a lot more problems with divorce right. than other parts of the society. Because it's not normal for us to go in and treat people like they're an animal mm -hmm. and then go home and live a normal life. It, right. it can't happen. Right. Well, it very rarely happens, let me put it that way. Right. If you could go back, you know, we all grew up in our communities, right? And mm -hmm. we see, like, oh, man, bro, you know, maybe, you know, people around me shouldn't have been, you know, teaching me that or doing this around me. Yeah. If you can go back uh, to your community where you grew up uh, and think about what are some of the things that they could have done to confront uh, or combat uh, racism or white supremacy? Hmm. Well, I didn't grow up in a single community because my dad was in the Navy. We moved every two years, whether we needed to or not. But that was a community in itself. Right. And um, I guess I could have asked a lot more, why are we segregated? Because I didn't see anything wrong with the people who were not allowed to come to our school or, and didn't come to our church. I don't think it was that they weren't allowed to, but why would they want to, right. you know? <laughs> right. and maybe the people that you probably want to ask the questions for, like, why did, you know, why did, you know, um, maybe they should have allowed more people that didn't look like them to come in. Right. And, you know, they probably would have gave you and a lot of other people, like, different perspectives. Like, oh, okay, like, we're all, you know, we're all people. We're all human. We're all learning and trying to grow from each other. And I, and I could have asked more about yeah. why aren't there black people at our church? Because, right. you know, my granddad, I, I remember the I was... The segregated place, they say. Yeah. <laughs> in the world, like churches. But yeah. I, yeah. But I was 13 when my grandfather told me this, and it was in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement, and I think it was 
right after or maybe before Dr. King had been murdered. Um, and when he told me this thing about black, the Bible says black and white people should be segregated because of the Tower of Babel, I knew that that story was about language and about people trying to be as good as God, right. you know, and, and I could have challenged that more, but I right. didn't. He was 13. You, I, know, yeah. like, you know, like many 13-year-olds, we're not challenging our, our grandfathers or our, our mothers or our dads on something they tell us, right? We, just, right. we take it and we say, okay, and then we, we eventually, hopefully grow up right. and we learn to think for ourselves and say, mm, maybe they might have got this one wrong. I, yeah. You know, right? Right. But, but you know, but... You, you know, don't want to see your grandparents as wrong. Right. You, don't see, you know, yeah, you know, uh, you know, like, unless it's something you want, right? Uh, like, exactly. Right. Do you think um, we will ever overcome uh, racism or white supremacy in the United States? I think if we will stop focusing on racism and start focusing on the dynamic of the masses versus the abusers of power mm -hmm. who create all these lies that we're believing, if we can focus on that and taking back our power from those people, yes, we can overcome racism and felonism. Um, you know, like I said earlier, our nation is kind of like uh, the dynamic with domestic violence. And the only way to overcome domestic, domestic violence is for the person who's being abused to go, you know what, I don't have to put up with this. Right. And take their power back from the person who is abusing them. Right. Whether it, I mean, we can't leave our nation in mass, but we can stop listening to these people and stop giving them power. Right. We stop voting them into office. Right. <laughs> how, what are your suggestions on how we do that and build power? Well, first of all, we have to pay attention to our own mindset and realize that there are times when we believe that's right. BS. I almost said the right, the real word, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who. No, no, hey, let it loose. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't care if people cuss. No, 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 no. All right, good. Um, so, um, realizing that I have had racist thoughts in my mind, and re real, and and I know other people who have too, right. and um, then realizing I've had felonistic thoughts in my mind. You know, I mean, right. I was racist to think, oh, that person's been in prison; you, they're not safe to be around. Right. But that's bullshit because uh, you know, there's a lot of wonderful people who have been in prison, and they some of them are the most trustworthy people you'll ever meet right. because their word is their bond. Right. They don't have anything but their word to trade with when they're incarcerated and, and they come out like my, that was one of the strangest things my husband found when he was out. People will lie to you like crazy. Right. But inside, people didn't lie to him because that's all they had, right. you know, right. to build relationships. Well, welcome, and, to the, welcome to the world we live in, right? Exactly. You know, so yeah. thank you for putting it in a book and <laughs> these stories. And, and you know, um, I just think it's very important the more stories that we share, about our own upbringing and how we develop our perspectives, but also how we was able to grow and learn and not, and, and not just stick to what we saw growing up or what we learned growing up and explore and admitting that, hey, I was wrong. I had these thoughts. They weren't right. right. But I recognized them, and I started to work on myself. Right. And I mean, if you're never exposed right. to someone another race, you don't right. even think about their perspective right. until you right. do get exposed. Right, and then when you get exposed, how do you take that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Are you, are you, are you shut down or are you being open-minded to learn and grow? 
and do the self-work on yourself first and then do it in your community, which affects the world. Right, and that, that dynamic is true for all communities. I mean, right. if you've only seen black people, right. you don't know anything about white right. people. Exactly, and, yeah. and, and this is, comes from my own experience, exploring, because I know I grew up in my own black bubble here in North Nashville, yeah. and I didn't get exposed to a lot until I was able to go to college a little bit, but even when I went to college, I stayed in my comfort zone. Uh -huh. with people that look like me or I was familiar with and then like I eventually was able to go overseas and do all these other things oh, cool. that, that blew up my perspective and then I realized like like, like we don't know nothing like we, how are we going to be trying to judge anything right uh -huh. we shouldn't be judgmental at all but how are we going to try to do that we, so our perspective our lens is just so um, so so narrow because we have only been exposed to a particular group uh, or a particular city mm -hmm. right and so that's why I love talking to human beings and learning yeah. um, from their stories and their journey because I'm always taking something away from it. Um, and hopefully other people are taking something away from it too and doing the work inside but also being intentional about, well, let me go intentional, reach out to the people that I'm not nec I necessarily wouldn't hang out with or even meet um, so I can just learn more and in that everybody grows, right? right. And we ain't got to agree on things, but at least we can be open-minded and have a better understanding on maybe why Linda think this way or maybe why Jerome think this way and go from there. Right. Yeah. And, and forgive yourself for being, right. you know, right. uh, narrow-minded in the past because right. that's all you knew. Right. So it's okay. Just try and keep opening up that, right. that mind. Right. Well, you opened up mine, and I hope you opened up the watches and listening. So, Linda, I appreciate your time. Uh, uh, yeah, we're going to make sure we highlight the book, too. So I appreciate your time, too. Leave the reviews. <laughs> All right, thank you, Linda. Thank you.